Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Doing good is always right. It is always right to do good. And it is always good to do what pleases God. And as you're finding Matthew 12, uh, I just want to say that, yes, we are in Matthew 12, and, and yes, we have been seeing the Pharisees' opposition to Jesus, and we're going to see more of it today. And their opposition really was mostly due to uh, um, his breaking their oral traditions that were later written down in what is known as the Talmud. And Jesus had referred to that oral tradition in in chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, as a yoke and a burden. And today we see Jesus field a question from the Pharisees. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That's the question. And Jesus responds with a statement, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And in Christ's answer and subsequent action, we see what we need to be and do in order to please God. So stand with me as we read. We're going to read verses 9 through 14 of Matthew chapter 12. When he went on from there, he entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him How to destroy him. This is the word of God, and may God bless his word today. Lord God, we thank you that we can open your word and and read it freely. Thank you, Lord, that we're not left to our own devices as believers to understand what this means today. We thank you, Lord, that by your spirit you give us understanding. By your spirit you open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word and so we pray lord that once again we trust lord once again that that is what you'll do today that you'll you'll give us something a glimpse of yourself you'll give us a a glimpse of ourselves and you'll give us a glimpse of what of what you might want to be doing in us and through us for your glory and we pray in jesus name amen Matthew 12, 9 through 14 highlights the badness of man and the goodness of God. And it reveals a truth that is absolutely necessary for us to grasp if we're going to please God in this life. We see in this passage an acknowledgement and an answer and an action and an agenda that exposes the Pharisees' evil hearts and reveals Christ's concern for the good of all people and for us. And we see the truth that Jesus wants us to know that doing good is always right so that we would not fall victim to attitudes and actions that displease Him. Doing good is always right. 
And he does not want us to fall victim to what the Pharisees fell victim to. Now, this is built upon and connected to what we saw last week. And so I want us to take a running start at at verses 9 through 14 by doing a a quick rundown of verses 1 through 8, where we saw Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath and Lord of all. And he wants us there to understand his authority so that we would praise him appropriately and not condemn others unfairly, as the Pharisees did. The Pharisees unjustly accused Jesus and his disciples, which led Jesus to uncompromisingly correct the Pharisees. In verse 1, we saw Jesus and his disciples going through grain fields on the Sabbath because they were, and they were hungry and they began to pluck the heads of grain and eat them. And the Pharisees, in verse 2, saw it and said, they're doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. The Talmud had taught that any journey over 2,000 steps was work and therefore forbidden. Interestingly, the crowds and the, and the Pharisees uh, did the same. But Jesus gives two examples of places in God's word where what was not lawful to do was actually approved by God and blessed by God to do. He gave an example in verse 3 of, of David um, eating the bread of the presence, the show bread that was set up every week. Uh, there were 12 loaves, each weighing 12 pounds each. There were big loaves of bread. And, uh, and then he gave an example of, uh, of the Sabbath, where the Sabbath was a work day for the priests, and obviously God did not, did not uh, tell them that was wrong. That was part of the, the picture that God had put together. Then in verse 6, Jesus makes a shocking statement, a statement that, that blew the, the Pharisees away. He said, something greater than the temple is here. That something is Jesus himself who brought in his kingdom. And... And in verse 7, then, he gives a, what is known as a second-class conditional uh, uh, clause statement, which is basically, he, he says something that is contrary to fact. So it infers something. He basically says, if you had known, but you didn't, what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned, but you did. And so... He uh, unfolds this, and and really what he exposes is that the teaching of the Old Testament pointed to the heart attitude and not to to, um, rituals and traditions, and and the Pharisees were as far away from that as you get. Then in verse 8, he he says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, which is an even more shocking statement. Here's the Pharisees who had lifted circumcision and Sabbath observance above everything else. In their minds, those were ultimate things. They had made those things ultimate. So Jesus exposes all this, and then another situation breaks out. We see it in verses 9 through 14. It's this time instigated by the Pharisees. And Luke chapter 6 tells us that, that it was on another Sabbath that this happened. But they picked on a man with a with a hand that couldn't be used for work anymore. They were trying to find grounds to accuse Jesus, and they could care less about the man and his condition. That's something we need to set aside and, and acknowledge right away. Here was a man who, was, who, was, who had a hand that couldn't be used, and they didn't care about that man. They cared about trying to accuse Jesus and bring public charges against him in the assembly. Once again, we see what wicked hearts can manufacture and the purity and clarity that Jesus brings to every situation. So let's look at verses 9 through 14. The first thing we see 
in the first two verses, in verses 9 and 10, is an exposing acknowledgement. There was a man with a withered hand. It, it literally meant dry hand. It just wouldn't work properly. Uh, the tradition had it that he was a mason and that this was his right hand, and therefore he could not work. But the Pharisees asked Jesus a question with regard to the man. They're watching Jesus. They're watching the man. And they say, is it lawful? Is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath? And here they were focused on human rules rather than human need. The Old Testament never said that you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. But their oral tradition had. And they said that unless someone's life was in danger, you could not help them. Rabbi Shammai, uh, his school of thought, took that a, a step further. You couldn't heal, help, or even visit someone that was ill on the Sabbath. The question was actually an acknowledgement. It, what it actually exposes is the fact that the Pharisees assumed that Jesus could heal. They knew what he had been doing. And so they basically assumed that in their question. But they were trying to find a, a reason to accuse him, to speak in the assembly, to bring formal charges against him, to come down, the, the word literally means to come down upon him. And so they thought that their question would expose Jesus, but instead it exposed them. They dug the, the pit and they fell in the pit. They thought their motives were hidden, but they were not. Jesus, Luke chapter 6 and verse 8 tells us Jesus knew their thoughts in this situation, obviously. Well, that brings us to a truth that we, we readily acknowledge. Jesus knows the thoughts of all, right? He knows everything. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're going to say. He knows what we're going to do. But it's a truth that we've got to come to terms with. It's one that we can easily throw around, but it's huge in implication for daily living. See, it's easy to say, well, Jesus knows everything, and then act as if he doesn't. If we truly understood it, we wouldn't do everything we do. Jesus knew the true thoughts and motives of the Pharisees. Their true heart was exposed in the presence of God incarnate. All things are open and laid bare in the presence of him with whom we have to do. But they wanted to trip Jesus up. They wanted to trap Jesus, and he knew it. And there was much more. There was much more about the Pharisees that obviously Jesus knew, and he did bring up in the Gospels. At one point, he spoke about how they loved possessions and money more than people. And actually, what Jesus is about to do next highlights this. But before we get there, let me just say this. He knows us. You know, we all would say, yeah, you know, God knows everything about me. God knows everything I'm going to do. God knows everything I've done. God knows everything I will do. But it's easy to forget that in the heat of the moment and go ahead and just do it rather than saying, you know, Lord, give me the strength to do what is right. Give me the strength to do what is good. And the question comes to us, you know, here's the Pharisees who did value possessions and money over people. And do we do that too? How many times do we put a possession or a, a pursuit in front of people, even those in our own home? How many times do we have motives for helping or not that are less than stellar? But the Pharisees' question uncovered an uncomfortable truth for them and really for us, but for them it was this. They were, they were deluded. They were deceived. They were wrong 
they thought they were doing good in some weird, twisted way, and Jesus showed them that they were doing evil. The Pharisees' reasons were wrong. It, it, it gives it clearly to us here that so that they could accuse him. They used what seemed good, a, a simple question about healing addressed to Jesus, as a covering for evil. Jesus' d- opponents, in a sense, were trying to disguise their, their hatred and disdain for him and wrap it up in a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They were trying to find grounds, and they used this good, simple, innocent-sounding question about healing as a covering for evil. How easy it is to do that. We, too, can be deceived, even as believers, and we must take close to Jesus and his word. It really brings us back to what we looked at last week about God's will and God's word and God's greatness being our, our primary concerns. But the truth here for us, and really what, what the Pharisees were doing wrong, is they were using good for evil. So we ought not to use good for evil not to use something good for evil purposes i mean it's easy to operate just like the pharisees did without even being aware of it here's here's how i'm thinking of this when the pharisees said said is it lawful it's kind of like when believers who get really fixated on what everybody else is doing and how they need to make sure they're doing the right thing say well that's not biblical or well I'm doing this and it's biblical. And so we use the the Bible almost as a shield for our selfish hearts. Let me explain a little bit more. Uh, Obviously, I don't even need to say it to don't try to trip people up. It's obviously wrong, right? But Romans 14 says that. uh, Resolve this to not put a stumbling block in a brother's way. They're putting a stumbling block in Jesus' way to try to get him to trip up. We would, should never do that to anyone, someone in the body of Christ or outside the family of God, to try to trip someone up on purpose. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And, and we have really good ways of hiding that. Questions we ask to really bait someone, make them think that we're on their side, and then wham! Their answer reveals how much we wanted to hear that, and so we, we turn against them. But don't use the Bible as an excuse for not helping someone in need. And I mean it this way, not the Bible correctly handled as we looked at last week, but the Bible out of context. It's really easy to do this. Uh, let me give you a couple examples. And, and you know, in, in 26 years of ministry now, I, I've done this so many times, I, I, I lost count. How many times I have left my house, my driveway, my, in front of my house, and, and got in my car and am driving to church to go do something good, to go to a Bible study, to a worship service or whatever, and observed neighbors and others in need and driven right past. Because I, I've got to go to this thing. And so, not that I should, you know, shirk my other responsibilities, but some of those needs could be met in five, ten minutes, which wouldn't really put me in jeopardy of missing anything. It's the fact that I really don't want to help. I'm glad I've got the shield of, oh, I've got to go to Bible study. I got to go somewhere else. I'm doing what is right. And, and, and in essence, I can be, I could be doing what is wrong. Um, the Bible, here's another one. You, you could use the excuse, well, you know, the Bible says to, we need to be separate from sinners. Uh, we need to be separate from the world. Therefore, I am not going to engage my neighbors or I'm not going to engage my classmates or I'm not going to engage people in the community uh, for Christ because God says I'm supposed to be holy and separate from them. 
Uh, flip side of that would be uh, doing something, uh, the idea of doing something bad for biblical reasons is, uh, from a judgmental standpoint, uh, I think more prevalent is excusing or rationalizing our actions uh, to make us feel better. Where we rehearse all the reasons why we shouldn't do a certain thing and based on a biblical reason. Um, so the idea is don't get legalistic about being legalistic, um, but don't take Scripture out of context to, to prove your point. Well, hey, I'm doing this and it's biblical. Or, hey, look, they're not doing what is biblical, so they're wrong, right? We must live well, guileless, no guile, uh, honest, no hypocrisy, no, no, um, no pretext. Just the truth, simple truth with God and with each other and, and things are good when that happens. 1 Peter 2.16 says this, live as people who are free and do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of the living God. So don't use good for evil. And the Pharisees were, were very guilty of that. But Jesus gives an enduring answer. We see it in verses 11 and 12, and the motives have already been exposed, at least, at least to Jesus knew the motive, but here now he is going to expose them. The, the wound is going to open. It, it, it's going to get raw. He gave an answer, by the way, that didn't just hit this situation, but transcends to every situation. A truth that went beyond the specific situation. Jesus' answer showed concern for their souls as he dealt gently and humbly with arrogant men. And again, it, it fits in context where Jesus in Matthew 11 says, I am humble and lowly in heart. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find in me rest for your souls. But Jesus uses an example they would have related to. He used an example of a guy with one sheep. If you only had one sheep, you'd be a poor man, right? You only have one, and you wouldn't just leave your sheep in a pit on the Sabbath. You would go get your sheep and, and save its life. It, it's your only sheep. So he says that. Which one of you? And, he, and this question he's giving is, is, is uh, anticipating, expecting a positive answer. They're all going to say, of course, we will all would do that. We all would do that. So he uses this example, that of rescuing sheep, and any, sheep, any shepherd would find a way to do the same thing. The bottom line here, because Jesus says it, in verse 12, is this. He said, so it is lawful to do good. Now you notice that he didn't say it's lawful to heal. He said it's lawful to do good. He, he transcended the, just, not just the healing, but to every instance of whatever doing good would be in that, in that setting. The bottom line is that Jesus approves of doing good. Like, well, that's not a, you know, a brain surgery answer. Everyone knows that. Well, the Pharisees didn't. And when we get blinded by our own Sinfulness and our own, we get deluded. We start thinking otherwise. Well, Jesus wouldn't want me to do that. Jesus approves of doing good. He says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, he could have given an example, uh, that, uh, an answer that, that went right along with the Pharisees, kind of saved face for them and fit his context as well. He could have said, you know, you got a point there. You're going to come back later. Let's come, why don't you come back tomorrow and I'll heal your hand. They got a good point. He didn't do that because they didn't have a good point. 
He's Lord of all. And as such, he's not going to bow to human will. The Pharisees cannot force his hand to do something. And, and we ought not to appease people just to please them and be accepted. How often have we done that? Well, we've maybe trashed a conviction or haven't been completely honest because we wanted someone to like us. Guys like me are really notorious about things like that. Christ is a good example for us to follow in his strength. Jesus approves of doing good. But another thing that Jesus' answer shows is that he considered that life is sacred. He says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Uh, comparatively greater. Life is sacred. It makes perfect sense that the maker of all would value the lives of those he has made, right? We need to follow suit and do the same. We need to decide where our allegiance lies with public policy and opinion or with God and his word. All of life is sacred and people more. Sure, uh, uh, a a, a shepherd would, would save his sheep. But Jesus says, how much more value is a man than a sheep? And in front of him is a man with a withered hand. They could not escape this question. This was not hypothetical. This was real. Standing right in front of them. In the parallel passages in Mark and in Luke, he basically asks the man to come forth. Stand right here. Center stage. How much more value is a man than a sheep? No one would think otherwise, right? Wrong. The Pharisees didn't think so. They, they essentially placed sheep on a higher level, on a more protective status than people. This is an example of the rules becoming burdensome, that sheep were more important to people than people to them. But God has made it very clear that man is greater than animals. We're supposed to kill them and eat them, right? But only what is necessary. Don't eat too much. That would be gluttony. So, what do we do with this? This is the third time in Matthew, by the way, that Jesus has used uh, contrast between animals and men and how people are more important than animals. And, and, and based on what? Based on the fact that, that man alone is made in God's image. We see that in the early chapters of Genesis. But you would think the opposite if you observed life here on earth for very long. It seems like animals and plants are more important to our culture than human beings. Try harming an eagle or chopping down a redwood. See what that will get you. Uh, but you will be encouraged to end the life of a child who can't speak for him or herself. It happens less than a mile from here every day. Every day. So how far has the morality of this generation of man fallen? How many moral lapses do we need to witness until we are fully convinced of the total depravity of man? Jesus approves of doing good and life is sacred and we, I think as a people who say we believe God, we believe the word, 
then need to return to God and his word and cling to that and set our minds on things above, not on things of earth. And we will be strengthened in that, in that moment to rise above the regressing standards of our generation. A, bank, a morally bankrupt world. And we can firmly stand on the grace of God. The grace of God. And the strength of his might. Stand for what is good, what is right, what is true. In an appropriate way. And not turn a blind eye. To the truth of what is going on. And the truth of what God says. Think about this. We live in a dark world. Spiritually speaking. But we are to walk in the light of the Lord. As dark as the days get. Um, in, in a in a culture of death even, uh, where some are protected and, and inanimate objects uh, are protected and, and people are not in many ways. And it's not just babies. It, it's, it's the elderly and it's those uh, who are deemed less acceptable. Those who walk in the light of the Lord will see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then be moved to speak and act for good. So Jesus gives a, an answer that is enduring, it is redeeming. And, and next, he does something. He, we see in verse 13 a restoring action. See, Jesus didn't just approve of doing good, he did good. He healed the man's hand. He healed him. Now, we know that Jesus is good. We know that the Bible says that none but God is good. We know that in Romans 3 it says that there is none righteous. Uh, there is none who seeks for God. There is none that, who does good outside of Christ. Now, some do things because it makes them feel good. People are doing all sorts of Philanthropic things and, and things to help people all over the place. But if, they're, if, they're, if they're, it's not coming out of a heart of love for, for the Lord Jesus Christ, then ultimately at the root, if you dig down, dig down, dig down, the reasons will be sinful. They will be prideful. Only Jesus and only in Jesus can a person be enabled to truly do good. And that good does not stem from us, but from God's goodness in Christ, working in and through us. As God changes our hearts, as he gives us new life, as he replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, as he renews our minds and renews our hearts, as he, uh, as he changes us, as he transforms us, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, it's only by the Holy Spirit that we can please God as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. The basis of our doing good is God. We have Scripture aplenty for it. Ephesians 2.10. It says that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should live in them, that we should walk in them. The idea here is that Jesus does good because He is good. It's a simple. It's very simple. Jesus does good here and all and everywhere because He is good he always does what is good he's 100 percent consistent now we're not but he works all things together for good we see in romans 8 28 we know that god makes beauty out of out of even humanly ugly things 
He inspires our good works. He, we learn in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that we are, uh, we are saved by grace through faith. We learn of the saving works of God on our behalf. But then we learn in that verse, in, in, in verse 10, that God in saving us meant to put us to work for his glory. God in saving us didn't mean to put us back on a shelf, but to put us to work for his glory, to actively work for the good of all, to the glory of God. Titus 2.14 says this, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, every lawless work, and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So God works in us daily to inspire good, good action, good works. Never doubt God's goodness. It's so easy for us to doubt God's goodness. Jesus does good because he is good. But if you're doubting God's goodness today, take heart, be encouraged that God is good and he will do what is good and right and true. Ultimately, he will thwart all plans raised against him and his people. But good works are only good if God is behind them. Jesus told the man, stretch out your hand. Extend your hand. Obviously, he wasn't able to do that. So he extended his hand and it was restored. It was, verse 13 says, put back, you know, restored like the other one. He, it, was, it was brought back to health. It shows us Jesus didn't simply talk, but he, he backed up his words with action to match. And so what that tells me is that we ought to trust God to go beyond words to actions based on God's truth. James 1.22 tells us to be doers, not merely hearers of the word. Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity, and by the way, there are so many opportunities uh, presented to us Daily, if we if we if we would rec- if we would but recognize them, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially of those of the household of the f- of faith. Um, we are to actively seek to do good to all people, especially those in the body of Christ, uh, fellow believers. We have probably all been guilty of ignoring a real need, and maybe even for what we considered good reasons. Maybe there was a higher reason for us not to do it. And I say, this is not a guilt trip. Jesus isn't even giving us a guilt trip here. It, it's, it, you could see it as sensitivity training for doing good and right and true um, for good reasons, meeting real needs. Go with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. In Titus, we see something We'll go at verse 5. We'll go at verse 4, excuse me. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, and this is, this is spoken to believers, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. So it takes us back to the saving works of God on our behalf based on the goodness of God. And it says that He did it according to His own mercy. The idea of holding back the punishment that our sins deserved by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then 
Let your eyes fall down to verse 14. Based on that, it says this. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. No believer wants to be unfruitful. No no believer wants to be useless in some way. But don't just talk about it. Find something good to do and do it. Just do something for God's glory and God's fame. So we see Jesus engaging in a restoring action. He does it because he is good and we are to do good. Go beyond words to action based on God's truth. The last thing we see in this passage is an escalating agenda. We see it in verse 14. Here's Jesus showing mercy to a man whose hand was broken. Mercy. The Pharisees were not about to show anything of the sort. Notice their response to a miracle. Notice their response to this miracle. They say that Jesus deserves to die. So he, he heals a man's hand. And he deserves to die. How more twisted can you get in your thinking? Instead of praising him, they condemned him. In light of mercy, they wanted to destroy Mark chapter 3 gives us this same story from another vantage point, filling in some of the gaps, bringing out other details. Jesus, by the way, is also asking a question to the Pharisees in this context. Verse 4, while they're watching him, while they're questioning him, he says to them, after he tells the man to come here, He says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? And it says that they were silent. They wouldn't say a word. They didn't have any trouble with that before. They would not say a word. And so Jesus' response, verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger. It's the Greek word orge, And it it literally means desire with grief. He did not want them to do what they were doing. And he was literally grieved over the fact that they were. And to show just how much they hated Jesus, Mark 3 and verse 6 tells us that they went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus. You don't know much about the Herodians. They're only mentioned three times in Scripture, and we don't know a lot about them. But here's what we do know. They were the religious and political enemies of the Pharisees. It's amazing when someone wants to destroy someone who they'll align with. They were, uh, the, the Herodians were not a religious sect, nor were they a political party. They were Jews who supported Herod's dynasty. Therefore, they supported Roman rule. So Pharisees would have nothing to do with Herodians unless they wanted to kill Jesus. And every time you see the Herodians mentioned, only three times in Scripture, it's joining with the Pharisees to oppose Jesus. Very interesting. So they consulted together how they might put him to death. They literally, it it means they conspired. They, 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 They compared notes 
They consulted together as to how they might put him to death. They, they planned out how they were going to kill him. Luke 6.11 tells us that when Jesus did what he did, they were filled with fury. Now Jesus looking around them in anger was righteous anger. Their fury was unrighteous anger. They had an evil desire to destroy as opposed to, to Jesus' good desire to show mercy that led him to restore. He, okay, get this. The Pharisees thought that they were God's defenders. That's how deluded they were. They were actually blaspheming God. They saw no conflict in their premeditated murder. But plans for premeditated murder, which was far worse than, than Jesus' supposed Sabbath and rule-breaking. And they saw no, no problem with that how far off they were they had lifted circumcision and sabbath keeping over everything else they had made them ultimate and now they raised their own agenda above god because they want to kill god incarnate they were they then be, were ultimate in their own minds they were the ultimate authority in their own minds and really this is all about jesus's authority they seated themselves in god's seat they lifted their desires above god Is there, is there any instance when a believer could do anything like that? God forbid, right? God forbid. But think of it this way. When, when, re, when we raise anything over our ultimate allegiance to God, at that moment we become idolaters. The idea is, and we all know it, is that we ought not to put anything above Jesus. But we know we have the propensity to do so. We know we have the tendency to do so. It could be tradition, like, like the Pharisees. This is what we've always done in our family, or this is what we've always done in our church, or whatever. This could be the teachings of your church. Well, here's what this church or that church teaches, so it must be an ultimate reality. Well, maybe that church is off. Maybe that church isn't following God's word. Maybe it's work. Placing work above all. Or, or, or money, or possessions, or even our own family, or, or our own feelings about things. Well, I feel it, therefore it must be. So the idea is that to, to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and to yield to the Lordship of Christ, we are to, to allow God to override our agenda. That The Pharisees couldn't get there. Now, we know why. They, they weren't saved. <laughs> they didn't believe. Now, a believer filled with the Holy Spirit is able to, to yield to God in such a way as to allow God to override their agenda. But as we see here, some people allow the, the rules of their religion to be put over the desires of God and the needs of his people. Remember that the Sabbath was meant to benefit mankind, not drag him down. 1 Timothy 1.8 says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, meaning according to its purpose, which Jesus revealed. The Pharisees made it into something to earn righteousness with God. 
It was supposed to show God's people the nature of God's holiness. It was supposed to drive people to worship God out of an abundance of, of, of gratitude. It was supposed to be a tutor to lead them to Christ, to show them their need for Christ. But the Pharisees taught this. They said, obey us and not just what god said but all the things we've told you verbally now i've learned something about myself over the years if i don't write it down i forget it if you and i are talking i will uh, jot something down if i'm on the phone with you i'll probably take a few notes because i don't want to forget and i realize it i got too many things i'm trying they're swimming around in my head and i gotta write it down or else i'll forget well the pharisees had had put out all these oral traditions that you had to remember you know how frustrating it is when someone says I told you that, you know, two days ago. Come on, how come you didn't remember? I always say, well, can you write it down? Can you email me or something? Text me. The Pharisees taught, obey what we say and you will be accepted with God. The gospel says exactly the opposite. See, the gospel says, in Christ you are accepted, therefore you're going to want to obey. God changes our desires. So if we're going to align ourselves with what Jesus wants here, know, and we're going to, if we're going to know that doing good is always right, and that's going to take wisdom to know what is the good to do, Holy Spirit inspired, inspired wisdom to know what to, the right thing to do, uh, if we're going to know that doing good is always right so that we wouldn't fall victim to attitudes and actions that displease God, then we need to stay very close to those three themes we looked at last week. That God's word must govern our lives. That God's will must be our primary focus. That, that God's greatness must be our, the ultimate for us. But this was not the case for, for Christ's opponents. By the way, verse 14 is the first mention of the plot to kill Jesus. First mention. And it springs not from disputes over what is legal to do on a Sabbath, really, but it's over Jesus' authority as Lord. And it brings us to the unavoidable, inescapable cross of Christ. Once again. See, the cross was man's plan to destroy Jesus. And it, it, the seeds had already been sown and planted, but here it's coming, a, 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 bit, of, a bit of it's coming out of the ground here. Let's, let's, let's kill Jesus. Didn't happen yet, but it, they, were, they were working on it. The cross was man's plan to destroy Jesus. But the cross was God's plan to restore us. God makes man's bad purposes serve his good purposes. The cross was part of the predetermined plan of God, as was the salvation of all who will believe, because the cross speaks death to evil and life to good. See, here's what God is doing right now. God is accomplishing his eternal purposes. God is accomplishing his eternal good purposes in Christ to save a people for himself to restore his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace that's what God is in process of doing even now and in the gospel we see that the substitutionary death of Christ in our place and then our responsibility to believe it by faith the gospel declares that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ God will save a people by his grace and renew the world by and for his glory. So, so put this way, the sovereign Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is our deliverer. He's our life. He purchased us with our blood, with his blood. 
And the cross was for his glory and our good. And through the cross, Jesus saves us and sets us free than to do good. That's how we're able to acknowledge doing good is always right. Even if it conflicts with something that we've been told is the right thing to do. Doing good is always right. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are forming your people into a counterculture for the common good. And Lord, we acknowledge that we are to be radically different from the world and that sometimes we're not, but we're called to be sacrificially serving both friends and enemies, working for the good of all people in this life, and most importantly, Lord, pointing them to Jesus Christ who alone can secure their eternal good. And Lord, we pray to that end that you would inspire us, that you would move us, that you would empower us to do good now for all people. And most importantly, point them to Christ. They would know him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.